guys, I'm sorry. I had no idea how dark this movie was going to be. I know. I mean, I didn't expect there to be so much animal cruelty in this movie. Yeah, I know. And that body horror. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. When they used child soldiers to bring down the villain, I was horrified. Anyway, this week we watched How to Train Your Dragon 2. Satirists, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mokel, here with my, I don't know, are you guys Viking or Draconic co-hosts? Well, I don't know about you, but personally, I'm a bread-making and small home repair Viking. I'll leave the fighting up to everyone else, personally. And what's your name? Yeah, what's your name? Oh, I'm glad you asked. I'm Jack. <laughs> and like I mentioned, I'm a bread-making and small home repair Viking. Leave the fighting to everyone else. That's me, Jack Olander, the bread-making and small home repair Viking. <laughs> Leave the fighting to everyone else. Help, I'm it's stuck good... in a... Hey, it's me, Jack. It's a good policy. <laughs> oh, God, I, I didn't prepare for this. Um... That's too bad, because you will be graded. <laughs> and I'm Chelsea Hollowell, an unholy two-headed dragon. <laughs> One head that screams, and the other head screams as well. <laughs> <laughs> the screaming just never stops. When one head stops screaming, the other head begins screaming. <laughs> <laughs> the other one takes a breath. <laughs> <laughs> and it's always discordant <laughs> oh. oh wait would you have one set of lungs so only one head would need to be breathing and the other one could continually <laughs> scream <laughs> now that's oh, anatomy well uh you listeners if you haven't figured it out by now this week for the uh podcast we watched how to train your dragon too <laughs> Well, this week for the show, we watched How to Train Your Dragon 2, directed by Dean Dubois. This film stars Jay Baruchel, Gerard Butler, Kate Blanchett, and Craig Ferguson, and, uh, you know, a bunch of other comedic personalities like Jonah Hill and Kristen Wiig and T.J. Miller. Totally not problematic uh movie fave tj miller right, right everyone? yeah uh, i think after this film they've all become problematic <laughs> that, <laughs> that is quite possibly true yeah uh christopher mintz plus kit harrington special cameo uh, america ferrera the list just goes on and on of people that they roped into this film but enough about actors. We don't care about those. <laughs> <laughs> we don't care about actors. No, no, no. We care about story. Okay. And there, what is a story that can't be summarized? And I'm sure Chelsea has prepared one of those 
iconic summaries for everyone. Yes. Here's a summary for How to Train Your Dragon 2. Hey, I got it. All right. So, this is a movie about family, unity, forgiveness, and acceptance. It except is? Except for whenever it isn't. I was going to say. <laughs> I feel like this is also a movie about not those things or about how bad those things are. <laughs> Listen, this movie doesn't know what it wants to be. <laughs> I think you covered all your bases. Yeah. So five years have passed since Hiccup and Toothless united the dragons and the Vikings in the first movie. And now they spend... And this movie's just about how that worked out perfectly fine and nothing goes wrong, Yes, right? they live in a utopia where... Dragon racing is the major pastime of Burke now, and the only entities or beings that have anything to fear are the sheep that are horribly mismanaged uh, and mishandled, uh, as they are the balls of this dragon racing tournament. Yeah, I mean, the dragon racing is kind of like Quidditch, down to, like, one sheep being more valuable than all the other sheep. It's kind of a combination of, like, illegal street racing and basketball. Yeah, and they're throwing sheep around, dunking them into nets, uh, catapulting them. It it seems like a generally bad time for the sheep, but everybody else loves it. Rampant animal cruelty, what's not for a Viking to love? <laughs> right. Meanwhile, Hiccup and Toothless are flying around the landscape around the village, trying to expand their knowledge of the surrounding landscape, charting the island's unmapped territories, along with Astrid and her dragon friend. I forget the name of it. Storm something? Stormwing? Stormwing? Something like that. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and so they're mapping out the uncharted territories of the island they live on. During one of these excavations, they find this strange fort that's been destroyed by an icy glacier that seems to have erupted out of its base. And they find dragon trappers there who try to entrap Toothless and Stormwing, but Hiccup and Astrid are able to save them and get away. Now, hold but on. during that interaction, they find out about this man named Drago or Drago who's forming a dragon army. But you also forgot about how this scene introduces Game of Thrones Jon Snow as a primary antagonist sure, and a why, sexy one. Why don't you tell us more about him? No, that's about it. He's sexy. What's his name? Eret. There you go. I knew son that. of Eret. <laughs> yeah, son he's of Eret. He's got Son of Eret. Yes, he's got Bulging muscles that um, a side character, friend of Hiccup and Astrid, Roughnut, is... Uh, Played by Saturday Night Live's Kristen Wiig. Yeah, she's kind of obsessed with Eret's muscles once she meets him later on. So Hiccup and Astrid go back to Burke and warn his father, Stoic, the chief, that Drago is building a dragon army and that he's coming to take over their lands. And his father t orders everyone to batten down the hatches and 
and nobody's allowed to leave the town and nobody's allowed to come in and they're going to defend their town. Is their town a pirate ship? Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and so Hiccup disagrees with his father. He wants to go to Drago and convince him that you can work with the dragons. You can befriend them. It, you can live in companionship and cooperation with them. And Stoic tries to tell him that there's no reasoning with an unreasonable person. But he also, Stoic has reason to believe this because Drago killed every other Viking chieftain years ago, except for Stoic, and thought he killed Stoic too. Exactly. But Hiccup doesn't want to hear any of that, and he escapes before they finish shutting down all access points out of the city. You know how Hiccup rolls. What's a little attempted regicide? <laughs> and on his way to go try to talk to Drago, he's accosted by a dragon rider who shoots him and Toothless out of the sky and then takes him hostage. And we later find out this is his long-lost mother who's been gone for 20 years and when she tells him that she stayed away because she didn't want to bring harm upon his head for some reason, he accepts it blindly with no emotion and is just happy to see her. What she was really saying was she stayed away because in the first movie she was supposed to be dead. <laughs> And then the writers decided that they wanted to get Kate Blanchett into this thing. Exactly. Have you ever died and been brought back to life by the gods, Hiccup? I'm not uh, a movie character. Yeah, that makes sense. Forget I said anything. <laughs> so Stoic and Gobber, the blacksmith, track Hiccup down... And they find him in this dragon cave, which is kind of like a dragon sanctuary where Valka, Hiccup's mother, lives with this dragon clan. And um, like an entire dragon society. There's like thousands of these fuckers. Sure. Whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I mean, I didn't understand the Trichotopia. physics. I <laughs> Nice. I didn't understand the physics of that because like... They, like, go inside of a cave, and suddenly they're in this gigantic, like, fern gully place filled well, with dragons. We'll talk about those details in a little bit. So, Stoic and Volca get back together. He kind of is the same as Hiccup, just like, you're alive! Great! We're married again, even though it's been 20 years. No problem, no problem. Marriage is until death do you part. If you think that your spouse died and you find them 20 years later, you're still married. That's hey, Valka. Hey, Valka. What is it, Stoic? My wife. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically how it went. Um, Hiccup's friends try to rescue him. They think he may have been taken hostage by... Drago, uh, even though there's no reason for them to assume that, they go find Drago. They get taken hostage. They have the same reason to believe that Hiccup's been taken by Drago that Stoic and Gobber have to be able to find Hiccup in this random place with no trail. Right. But there is the chance that he followed the tingling of his beard to find Hiccup. Oh, that's a good point. That's very Since good. Since he's essentially good. a dwarf. 
I could see it. Yeah, yeah, dwarf <laughs> sense is tingling. Nice. So Hiccup's friends try to boast their way out of being slaves and having their dragons turn to slavery as well in this new dragon army. So Drago believes everything they say about Hiccup being the world's best dragon rider and best controller of dragons. Why not? Everybody else believes everything right when they see it in this movie. Yeah. It's a very naive society. And, and uh seems like Drago doesn't want any competition for those titles. So instead of letting the kids go like they are hoping for, he tells his people to stop all preparations for world domination, I suppose, and go after Hiccup and the other dragon riders to take out their alpha. He assumes there's some alpha that's controlling all those other dragons. And so he has this alpha. There's this whole idea about alpha dragons kind of problematic. We'll get into that later. So he leads his army against them. There's an epic battle between the two colossal dragons, we'll say. And one of them seems to be able to control the minds of all the lesser dragons, all the smaller dragons. And so the benevolent female colossal dragon is killed in the fight against the male domineering slave driving dragon. Hmm. Very suspicious theming there. <laughs> yeah. And Drago takes all of the dragons that have been brainwashed and his alpha, and goes after Burke. But somehow Hiccup is able to get all, wrangle all of the baby dragons and recruits them as child soldiers. Thank and you. And they go after the dragon army, use them to defend Burke, and they all wait patiently while Hiccup tries to unbrainwash Toothless uh, in the middle of the fight. Just for the record, these child soldier dragons won't follow an alpha, but will apparently follow a human? Yes. <laughs> and so he's he succeeds. He's able to get Toothless. Uh, oh, yeah. What, real quick. Um, I forgot that in the battle between the two colossal dragons, uh, Stoic tries to save Hiccup um, because Toothless is being brainwashed. And tries to attack him, and he hits Stoic instead, and Stoic dies. So, kind of a big plot point there. Pretty much, like, in that level of eventfulness, according to the movie. <laughs> Except they have a Viking funeral for Stoic. Yeah. So, um, back at Burke, near the end, uh, Hiccup is successful in freeing Toothless from the mind control. Toothless goes up against the colossal dragon, and is able to defeat him, and then all of the other dragons treat Toothless as the new alpha, and they bow down to him as, like, their chieftain. And then Hiccup, even though throughout the rest of the movie, decided he knew he didn't want to be a chief, he wanted to be an explorer, an adventurer. Since his father died, he decides, oh, actually, I am going to be the chief now because it's my duty. And um, he's declared the chief, and they basically go back to their dragon races. And you're kind of led to believe that, oh, everything's happily ever after now, even though Stoke is dead. Uh, Hiccup's mom decides to live with them in Burke again. And it's all hunky-dory, the end. 
He's got one parent. Like, he's always had one parent. They're basically interchangeable at that point. Yeah. It's like the rule of two from Star Wars, except one. <laughs> well, there you have it. Now we're going to freaking pick this thing apart. <laughs> oh, different Star Wars quote. This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. <laughs> well, that didn't last long. <laughs> yep. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, after that, I think it's pretty much time for us to head to the delve. Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore for How to Train Your Dragon 2. Well, guys, most important thing in the whole movie, we've got to talk about it right here up front at the start. What the fuck is the button on dragons that give them dorsal fins? I don't know. It's kind of at the nape of their neck, and it was so fucking creepy. What? evolutionary purpose does this button and again it is a button that apparently all dragons have <laughs> that activate an important part of their genetic physiology that they need a human to push that require yes that requires a thinking creature apparently because they apparently have no instinct to push their own button or to, like, I mean, I don't know, is it supposed to be, like, a parent is supposed to, like, activate it for their young and Toothless doesn't have parents, so nobody was there to push the button that activates his split tail fins? I don't know. Well, perhaps they would have split naturally, and she just sped up the process by hitting a pressure point. Who knows? I'm just imagining, like... Uh, Hiccup's mom comes up to you, right? And before you can scream that a CGI character is approaching you, <laughs> she pokes you in the back of the neck, and like a Hindu god, two more arms sprout behind your current arms. And it's possible. you just start screaming, and she's like, all humans have their secrets, and then disappears. I mean, I was thinking of the episode of Next Generation where Data shows Dr. Crusher where his off button is. Oh, God. And then is like... Oh, yeah. And then is like... And Dr. Crusher asks him about it, and he basically says, like, if you had an off button, would you want other people to know about it? And that's what I thought of when I saw this button on dragons that gives them magic or, like, special evolutionary powers. Yeah. Yeah, he kind of leveled up as a result of that. Yeah, he did. It's just like, what would have happened if she hadn't come along or they hadn't met her? He would have lived his life never knowing his potential. I guess so. This isn't even my final form. <laughs> it wasn't, because later on he also gets, like, ice-charged. Yeah, he gets, like, a Super Saiyan form where he's all glowing along his spine and in his mouth and everything. You've activated my secret power, Knight's Fury. Yeah. This is an odd take on Darwinism, I'm just going to say. Yeah. I, I think Darwin abandoned this universe. Yeah. 
That's from his secret notebooks, where you find out where humans' evolutionary buttons are. Oh, God. Oh, God. Sorry, primates. Primates' evolutionary buttons. Yes. So, I have a few themes that I want to talk about, but I kind of want to introduce them all through this meta-commentary about how this is a family movie that doesn't understand how to use themes to drive its own messages home. So I believe it. <laughs> so fam, let's just talk about the general I- idea of a family movie real quick. So it's supposed to have content for the whole family, hence the name. Okay, so- dragons, whole family covered. Got it. <laughs> Vikings, also whole family covered. And the themes necessarily have to be somewhat simplified to be able to speak to the younger audience but then usually there are jokes or bits of commentary or or themes that can grasp adults attention as well but i felt like the themes were over simultaneously oversimplified in this movie and then deeply obtuse (laughs) yeah to because they they don't commit to anything i guess so media for children often will contain lessons, right? Encapsulated in the I themes. never learned that. <laughs> it's kind of a general thing. But all of the themes that are introduced are not explored in depth and never really kind of go anywhere. So let's give some examples of that. There's the theme of family and unity. So we see Hiccup building up his new relationships with his friends, his peers. Who used to not really think he was anything worth their time. Yeah. He and his they used father... to make fun of him and call him names and never let him into their Viking games. Exactly. And he and his father never used to get along, but now they have a real camaraderie. In this movie, um, even though they still don't always agree on everything, it's clear that they their relationship is much improved. And Hiccup does talk about the idea that cooperating with dragons can bring everyone together and, and living in unity and harmony. But then there's also this unexamined issue of abandonment from his mother. So that totally undercuts the whole theme. She admits that she never tried to get back to Burke for the entire 20 years. So she was kind of abducted by a dragon that she befriended during a raid when Hiccup was an infant. And then she's like, nah, that's cool. This is fine. And she realized when she got to Dracotopia that the dragons were actually her friends and they just wanted her company she could have gotten her way back home. It wasn't that far away. <laughs> no, it really wasn't. And it's she, a couple of miles at most. She basically told Hiccup, she just straight up admitted that she decided to stay away because she couldn't convince his father that they should work with the dragons after a few conversations. And she she abandoned her marriage and she abandoned her son because she said oh i thought you'd be safer if i stayed away what logic 
was she using to get to that point? She never explains why she thought that. It's nothing personal, Hiccup. I just cared more about the dragons than you or your father. Really? That, uh, that feels very personal. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't question her. He doesn't ask, well, why did you think that? Like, what what happened What you? the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> You're my mother and you left me for living with dragons. Maybe somebody of his age would have gotten mad or even if he's, you know, more sensitive and accepting of a person, maybe he at least would have been sad to hear about his mother feeling this way. And he he didn't express any emotion except for, just staring at her and then slowly smiling and then just kind of say, half-heartedly saying, yeah, I guess we can kind of work together now. He didn't even have a single Charlie Brown walk away sad moment. <laughs> there was no conflict there for them to work through and then kind of resolve it later on. And no time. <laughs> And, like, to show growth and resolution and to kind of, like, show that you can forgive people, you know? And show the process and the emotional process of going through trying to forgive somebody and the work it would take on both people's part. And so it it creates this false narrative for children that if you just neglect all your relationships, that everybody's just going to be there waiting for you when you get back if you decide you want to interact with them again or conversely it reinforces this idea that if a loved one does something to like right. bad you can just instantly forgive them and everything can just go back to the way it was before but like like i understand that she was abducted but again she was not actually being held against her will right she was maybe three miles away from Burke. <laughs> She didn't come back. She didn't put it in context. She didn't say, I'm going to live with the dragons half the year, like a mythological figure might. She just right. disappeared for 20 years and let Hiccup and Stoic think she was dead. I know. She just abandoned them. And she cared about them clearly in the flashback. She and Stoic loved each other. They seemed to have a good relationship, even though there was this major issue that they couldn't reconcile. And Nor did they try. No. She and, just assumed how Stoic would react. Exactly. That's true. And and then she just abandoned her child to this situation, you know? <laughs> so I actually think that, you know, you've, you've touched on a great point there. And unfortunately, Volka kind of represents another major thematic problem with this movie. Because... She says two contradicting things in the span of, like, one minute. She says she doesn't believe that people can change, but she does believe that, like, change can be enacted. But then the movie just totally reinforces this idea that people can't change. Even though in the previous movie we saw Stoic able to change his opinion, you know, from the first movie to this movie especially. Yeah. He embraces Hiccup for who he is. You know, I think we talked about in the first episode we did on How to Train Your Dragon 1, how, you know, Hiccup's storyline as a sensitive and empathetic character with a 
disapproving father could be kind of inspirational for people who might be going through similar trouble. In this movie, Volka says she doesn't believe in change. Stoic says he doesn't believe Drago can change. And they're both right. In the end, Hiccup wants to use diplomacy and empathy on Drago, and it completely fails, and they have to beat him by having uh, better dragons. Yeah, so that's the part where unity and acceptance, those themes kind of fall apart again. And I wrote about that in my notes, too, how Hiccup wants to use diplomacy, and he's thwarted by the actions of all of the other characters to be able to do this, where in the first movie... It shows that he has autonomy and agency to be to like figure out who he is. And at the beginning of this movie, he still has that. But then after they find out about Drago's army, every other character works to stifle Hiccup's agency and creativity. And it is shown that, yeah, you can't change and you can't change your fate either. Hiccup doesn't want to be a chief. He wants to be his own person. He's, he says at the beginning he's trying to figure out who he is. And he's try, he's on a journey of self-discovery. And he, he loves to adventure and be an explorer. And to kind of engender peace and sue for peace between different groups of people. And he's kind of a diplomat. And he doesn't want to be in one place overseeing the rules and regulations of a town his talent he knows that his talents and personality would not work in that situation and in the end he just accepts this role that other people want to put on him yeah because he feels like it's his duty to honor his father's memory i mean there's so many other ways that you can honor someone's memory without sacrificing who you are and your own dreams. But instead, the movie has to reify the concept of hereditary monarchy. Yeah, and and just, like, doing everything that your parents say you should do and not having any real individuality or, like, basically, don't follow your dreams, kids. <laughs> That's basically the message. Yeah, I mean, the sad thing is, at the beginning of the movie... Hiccup has become basically like a cartographer and a naturalist, basically. Like, he tracks dragons, he's trying to care for them, he's like a zoologist, basically, and a, like I said, like a cartographer. He's making maps, he's finding out where dragons go, he's looking out for their well-being. Yeah. Like, this is the, the, this is the perfect continuation of the character from the previous movie. Like, he has gone down a road that totally makes sense for his interests and his level of empathy that we inter we were introduced to in the previous film. Yeah, it's true. I feel like they go back on a lot of their themes of the first film, and they kind of undermine the themes they introduce in within this film itself, too. How, what are your thoughts, Jack? Because you haven't had a chance to say very much yet. And I know you may not agree with us. So when it comes to Hiccup becoming the chief, I think probably what they're trying to reflect in his character in the beginning when he's saying he doesn't want the job is just kind of the nervousness that his character experiences. Because in the first movie, he's a very nervous and unassertive person. Yes. True. And it's only kind of through desperate situations that he realizes it's time to take charge. And... I think he still follows that consistency in this film. 
where he sees that becoming a chief would be something difficult and scary for him to do. So he kind of sticks to his guns. And then only after they're kind of in dire straits where his dad is dead, Burke is going to get conquered if no one steps up. Then he decides to take charge and kind of, you know, fight for the life that he's worked to cultivate. I, um, you're giving me an idea for rewriting history because while we were watching it, I um, just wondered why he didn't convince Astrid to become the next chieftain because she clearly wanted it. Oh, dude, Astrid has been very capable in both films. Yeah, she kind of gets the short shrift in this movie, I feel like. It seems like at the beginning she's going to be a major part of the story, and then she gets relegated to, like, the B-plot, and then she just becomes a bit player within that B-plot. Most definitely. But uh, also, earlier throughout the film, everyone has been calling him kind of the pride of Burke, and a lot of people are looking to him for, like, how they should treat their dragons and how to make inventions and the way they are kind of supposed to live their life in the new society he's set up. But essentially what I'm saying here is Stoic is still in charge of governing, but Hiccup at the beginning of this film has already kind of become a cultural leader for the changes that are happening in their city. Sure. And I mean, he, he could still take on that role if he weren't chieftain, he could be like an advisor and diplomat. Yeah, and you mentioning that reminds me of another character, an old mute woman who is from the first movie who seems to have some powers that the chief doesn't. Like, she assigns who the winner of, like, dragon training is. She kind of oversees a lot of the rituals in the city, such as the ritual to make you into a chief and the funerals. So... That, in another timeline, uh, stay tuned for next week's episode, could have been something Hiccup would inherit instead. More of, like, the ceremonial cultural leader. Ooh, I like it. That's cool. Yeah. I feel like, even though you've made a great case there about, like, why Hiccup might be potentially a good leader, I think that the movie makes the mistake of pushing that too fast on the character it really seemed to me like the logical choice was that Volka was going to step up and become the the chief for the time being and yeah maybe Hiccup over time would get more opportunities to still go out see more of the world Stoic has clearly lived a long and storied life before he became chief right he, he went on adventures. Wa- he, yeah, he, a he, yeah. he was a warrior. He was a probably, I mean, I don't know. Stoic probably wasn't a diplomat, but that would be the path that Hiccup would have probably taken. He would have gone out, met new tribes, negotiated with them, maybe introduced dragons to more people, come back to Burke later on in life to take over the rule while his mother, fall, you know, who was at that point a better candidate for leader right more experienced had done more things oh yeah i see what you're saying she's kind of a foul choice in my opinion for chief (laughs) just because for 20 years she's been living as kind of a barbarian essentially with the dragons and when hiccup finds her she's moving on all fours and not speaking 
She's gone feral. <laughs> yeah, essentially. Yeah, but man, she comes back to like she snaps out of that real quick and like yeah. is able to instantly slide right back into living with humans without any for lack of a better word hiccups. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're definitely right about that. But also the way she was viewed in society before she left was kind of worse than Hiccup, I think, in the first movie. Right. Burke has shown its capacity for change between these two movies. It's true. I guess just the idea that she hasn't been seen in 20 years might be a concern. Well, I'm just, I guess for me, I figure if her own, if the idea of the film is that her own family can instantly go back into treating her like she never left, why not everyone else in society? <laughs> oh, okay, you make some good sense there, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the problem for me is that, like, this, the film sets up these themes very well. The idea of change. Burke has changed. Stoic has changed. Volka is able to change. Eret, son of Eret, is <laughs> we're introduced as a villain, and through seeing how brutal Drago can be, changes to helping the Burkeans. Well, especially after one of the dragons at Stormwing, Astrid's um, friend, saves his life. Yeah. So, like, all the themes are set up very nicely for this idea that people can change, but the end of the film kind of reels back some of that and says, actually, we got to beat up Drago to run him off, and Hiccup's going to be chief right now, even though he might not really be ready for it and we're just gonna go full bore with that i did like that there was a scene where hiccup was able to speak with drago he was trying so hard for like the first half of the film uh the first time i saw it i didn't expect that he would actually get the chance to do it until the final fight so seeing him actually speaking to drago when the alphas were facing off and drago's like actually listening to him and kind of like responding even though he has no intention of changing i thought that was a pretty funny scene yeah. where he's like ah so just from like the first thing he says when hiccup lands and is like you can't do this drago's immediately like oh so you're the famous dragon rider hiccup it, you're you're a little lot less than i expected immediately you can kind of tell the conversation isn't gonna go the way hiccup wants totally yeah yeah, I think it's set up pretty nicely in that scene that Drago is, like, not... Right from the get-go, he doesn't take him seriously. Right. I guess, like, that to me is kind of one of the missteps of the movie. I guess because I like that Hiccup, as our perspective character throughout at least the first two movies, and I think for a lot of the series, believes that he can use diplomacy and empathy to get to, to reach Drago and having that undermined to me kind of hurts the overall feeling of the movie. Like of I wanted and, and camaraderie and everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can, there can be a story where maybe it's hard, maybe getting to Drago takes drastic action, but I think it would have cinched in the themes of the film better by actually having hiccup have been right. Especially if the idea is that, this character is supposed to be worthy of leading the Burkeans, then I think 
he should like that his idea that diplomacy works should have been reinforced by the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the first movie, Stoic, you know, he cares about his people and he cares about his son, Hiccup, right? Yeah. Even if he doesn't know how to show it sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And through working with dragons, his people are saved after he makes the mistake of attacking an alpha, essentially. Yeah, his people are saved by working with dragons, and his son is saved by a dragon that he was persecuting. So through dragons protecting what Stoic cares about, his mind is sort of changed, right? Volka cares about protecting dragons, right? Yeah. And when she sees that, you know, her family is into that idea, she's willing to overcome her differences with the citizens of Burke and kind of come back. And so generally what I'm trying to get at here is that those two characters, which had caused conflict with their biases, were able to switch sides because they valued something, right? Stoic valued his people and his family. Valka valued the dragons in her family. So they were able to find something to fight together over. But then Drago, all he cares about is ambition. Uh, it's like gaining power, pretty much. Revenge and power. So it seems like if they're trying to stand with their own themes, they gave the wrong motivation to their villain. Right. right. Yeah. You know what, guys? I think this is the perfect time to take a break and head over to the bounty board. The wind whips through your hair as you fly on your gliding wings through the sky, traveling at the speed of a loosed arrow you careen through the clouds. Suddenly, before you, you see a mountainside. As you frantically adjust your flight to avoid the rocky outcrops, you notice words etched in the side of the mountain. They read, Bounties? This week, Swords and Satire is proud to be sponsored by Audible. What's Audible, you ask? They're the leading provider of audiobooks and other spoken word entertainment, including guided meditation, daily digests and news, and original programming. Now, I got to tell you, I've been an Audible subscriber for a long time, and I've really enjoyed the audiobooks that I've listened to through the service. They've got a great selection of memoirs by filmmakers and actors from some of our favorite fantasy movies. Obviously, a lot of fantasy and sci-fi literature that all three of us love here at Swords and Satire, and tons of other great content that you're definitely going to enjoy. And I especially love Audible because it's so easy to get into a book and do other things with your day, you know, whether or not you're in the car, driving to or from wherever you're going, or doing yard work, doing the dishes, stuff like that. You've got something right there, ready to go, that you can listen to. You know, I know all of us feel like we should be spending more time reading. You know, we feel guilty that we don't get through a lot of books or whatever. And Audible gives you a great way to solve that problem. You can download books directly to your phone or tablet and 
listen to them offline, which is great for me because sometimes I'm doing work in places where I don't have good Wi-Fi signal. And you can listen across different devices and it keeps track of where you are in your book. So you don't have to spend a bunch of time jumping around trying to find where you left off. So we want to give you the opportunity to sign up for Audible and also help support our show by going to audibletrial.com slash swords and sign up for your free 30-day trial. And when you do that, you're going to get a credit for a free book that's yours to keep, whether or not you keep your membership. You're going to get access to select Audible Originals, exclusive wellness guides, and you'll get an email reminder before your trial ends. But I'm sure you're going to decide that you want to keep your membership because there's so much that Audible provides. They have thousands of titles for you to choose from, and they're constantly adding new content all the time. And if you want to start out by listening to something that I was a huge fan of, then I suggest you use your credit to get True Indie, Life and Death in Filmmaking by Don Cascarelli. That's right, the legendary director of Beastmaster himself wrote this memoir and reads it, which just makes it so much better. He tells great stories about his time working on Beastmaster and Phantasm and Bubba Hotep and all the other great movies he's made. He gives you interesting insights into the world of filmmaking and just is such a charming guy that I know that you're going to love this book as much as I did. So once again, visit audibletrial.com swords to sign up for your 30-day trial, your choice of an audiobook, and to help support our show. And now back to the episode. Yeah, I guess just in general, a lot of what I find problematic about the alpha concept is just that people who don't think critically about that sort of thing hear that alphas exist and they're like, oh, like people, right? But, like, I think the idea of dragons having alphas isn't inherently problematic because they show it more as, like, a supernatural ability. Yeah, I mean, I think the big problem is that it misrepresents the idea of what leadership looks like. Oh, yeah, but generally it's only supposed to be used in animals. So, again, in almost every context I've seen, it's not applied to people. So any implications or any any conclusions people draw that that applies to human society, I feel like is their fault rather than the media that is using the alpha kind of stereotype or yeah well the media that that reuses it is responsible in that they're taking junk science and treating it as like something that needs to be reinforced much like the idea that humans only use 10 percent of their brain which becomes the basis for these movies and then people believe that that is a reality when it is in fact a misunderstanding of the science so this idea that an alpha animal is the biggest toughest specimen that leads all the others when in fact like animals know instinctively that leadership is a responsibility 
to other members of your community, not this ability to control them, but rather the responsibility to watch out for them and protect them. And be in a supportive or protective role. So these right. the, the way that they use this concept in the film of an alpha as this dragon that can literally exert mind control over all other dragons creates this idea that, for one, this alpha specimen exists, and for another, that it is a unstoppable controlling member of its species who can exert its will over all others. That is, at best, deeply inaccurate, and at worst, reinforces damaging societal concepts. So, if they had used a different word, like a tyrant or a dominator... Oh, that would have been way better. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I guess it's just me. It feels like if anyone takes this the way you just said, that's their fault. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah. I mean, me I mean, so media can't force people to like do things, but it can totally reinforce misguided or inaccurate views and then those get perpetuated throughout other segments of society. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, at the time when this movie came out, that theory wasn't really contested to the point where many people understood that it was contested. Uh, I think, and it, it was being perpetuated to the point where it was accepted by a lot of people as being true. It was just that this misinformation had caught on so much in the media that people accepted it as true. And like, it's only been in more recent years that I think it's been being reversed in the general understanding well, maybe we can get a special guest from our patrons to come on to an episode in the future and talk about that with us. Somebody who knows uh, this theory very well, or somebody who uh, understands uh, this concept in animal behaviors very well. Yes, that would be great. That would be a lot of fun. I, mm -hmm. I guess for me, it's the same thing as like this. I'm going to just keep coming back to this idea that it's like the 10% of your brain thing that just it's junk science that, that I think misleads people and it kind of creates this uh, self-perpetuating idea that, you know, you can do it in different ways. If the basis of these movies that say, it unlocks the unused 90% of your brain just said it unlocks potential that your brain can't even like, or that it unlocks potential in your brain that without it can't even be reached. Like I, I it feels very different to me rather than like supporting this inane concept. Okay. I totally, uh, yeah. Okay. Now I get what you're saying. Yeah. It took me a sec. Yeah, yeah, but sure. you don't like the inaccurate science of it. That's what it is. Partially, yeah. I mean, just this idea that it is taken so much for granted that it becomes movie shorthand that I think spreads more in misinformation than it does builds enjoyable plots. Yeah. Okay. So... I can see that. It rubs you the wrong way, the same way the Flat Earth Society rubs you the wrong way. I, I never said anything about that. Oh. 
<laughs> Everyone knows the Earth is shaped like a dinosaur. I was going to say, like, that's not even up for debate. And Wyoming doesn't exist. <laughs> I mean, why should it? To all our listeners from Wyoming, no, you're not. <laughs> you can't be. Well, guys, we've touched on it a bit a little while ago, but why don't we move into evil, stupid, or misunderstood? This is evil, stupid, or misunderstood. The part of the podcast where we take a look at the villain of the film and determine if they were really stupid or actually just evil. Or could they have been misunderstood? All right, guys. I know you've been waiting for it, so let's talk about Drago. Oh, I've got an opinion. All right. Why don't you start? All right. Evil. <laughs> I see. What a controversial idea. Yes. So, Drago mentions his past, how everything was taken from him by dragons. And, you know, that's too bad. You're like, oh, this guy could be misunderstood, but no, nah, no, nah, not really. Because he sort of campaigns to get people to follow his movement as this idea that, oh, revenge against the dragons combined with we can never let this happen again, right? But it's revealed when Hiccup is speaking to him that that's just kind of what he says to get people on his side. He really just wants power and to dominate the world with an unstoppable dragon army. And when Hiccup is like, hey, you just want power and dragons are the tools for you to get it. He's like, ah, clever boy. So he pretty much denies that he's misunderstood and is like, yeah, by the way, I'm evil. Yeah, I mean, the, he's supposed to hate dragons for taking his arm. But then he just has an army of dragons that he uses to exact revenge, question mark, on humans? This is why I think he's also stupid. Because yes. he has no real goals besides this nebulous idea of wanting more power and to take over the world. And it's just completely destructive. He just kills everything in his path. And it's just like, what is going to be left for you to do if you actually succeed like are you just gonna commit suicide when you're done i mean what are you what is gonna be left for you to do maybe he hopes to die in one of these battles i don't know here i stand at the top of the world ready to make the final sacrifice <laughs> yeah then he can just live happily ever after with his dragon lover the alpha that he oh hold on works Sa with. save that for rewriting history <laughs> he's a self-loathing dragosexual oh yes. boy draco draco dracosexual i don't know i mean what do you guys think it, it just seems like a really stupid idea to me no i think you're right he's kind of clever 
in like he knows how to dominate dragons. Okay. But that's kind of where it ends because he doesn't really understand how to be a leader to people. He just kind of is constantly sacrificing his henchmen and tossing Arid aside, right? And he isn't even necessarily trying to enslave every dragon because in his quest to capture them, his traps are very poorly made and injure a pretty significant number of dragons that he tries to enslave. Yeah, Yeah, he's kind of one of those classic villains who doesn't care about his soldiers and... I mean, first off, I hate that trope. Yeah, why would anybody bother to follow somebody like that? You know. What I, I mean? mean, I guess it's just out of fear, but yeah. like, it kind of works in this context because he seems to have like an almost supernatural control over dragons, but it is mostly just tyranny, and then he's able to use the alpha, but then... Why doesn't the alpha just eat him? Yeah, that's a big problem I had with this whole scenario. He relies on the alpha to keep them all in line and and brainwashed. How is he controlling the alpha? Okay, for anybody who hasn't seen this movie yet, the alphas are these colossal beasts. I mean, they're the size of a small mountain. And he's a large human, but still... Kind of average six foot human size, just a still kind of human compared. Guy. Still a human compared to a dragon. Yeah, so there's no way that he could dominate them the way he does the smaller dragons that our other character, our heroes, ride. Like they are intimidated by his stature and his confidence and bravado, and they're roughly equal size, and so it's all of like his charisma and intimidation that keeps them in line. There's nothing that will keep the Colossus working for him. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, Well, the dragons took his arm, but he's <laughs> giving the big dragon some dick. <laughs> oh, is he is lover? a dragosex- dragosexual. <laughs> that's his lover. Okay, there you go. Yes, that's why it stands by his side. You've you've solved it for me, Jack. I I think that that's the only way that I can possibly explain this this character working. Okay, now I understand. (laughs) Yes, you see, when he's signaling for the Alpha to attack, he swings his spear in the air while screaming a few times, and that's like the (laughs) typical mating dance of the Alphas. Okay, there you go. So he's like enticing the dragon with of the promise of sexual favors if it will fight this He's a real Loki a- type. You know what I'm saying? Wow. Nice. Yeah, hmm. so I think we hit the nail on the head. Stupid, evil stupid. <laughs> evil stupid Dracosexual. Nice. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm kind of uncomfortable with how poorly they portrayed Dracosexuals in this movie. I think that it should really be a more sympathetic role and they missed a lot of great opportunities. Yeah, you're right. Casting them as the villain. Typical trope. Yeah. That old standby. (laughs) This seems like a perfect time to head into the smithy. (laughs) 
Welcome to the Smithy, where we forge a rating for this movie after we each share an epic moment or feature from the film. Chelsea, would you care to give us your epic moment or feature and then rate this movie from one to ten swords? I really, I'm going to give an epic feature for this film. I really liked Dracotopia. It was nice to see all those different dragons getting along. Their colossal mother was really nice to them. She didn't enslave them. She actually provided for them and, like, went and got them food rather than forcing them to just feed her all the time. And she actually protected all of them and looked out for them. And it was like a utopia for dragons. So that part was pretty cool. And um, I liked how they were all provided for in kind of like a big functional family. It was nice to see that. So that was an um, an epic feature of the film. That that was a better functional family than anything the humans ever had. <laughs> True. I'm going to give this movie four out of ten swords. You know, I feel like it's got a lower rating because it's not clear in its messaging and actually has some negative messages that children might learn from watching it. Um, and since it is geared towards families that have children, I think that they really miss the mark there. But also it just makes it not really make very much sense. So it's not a good movie in that way either. You know, the I like the animation. The animation's cool. I, I, like, I like the idea that Hiccup could have a life of exploration and, and self-discovery. And I wish they had delve deeper into that part of the story uh i feel like that would have been more interesting um but yeah it was a 10 out of 10 experience watching it with you guys as always mm -hmm. yeah but the movie is not 10 out of 10 no <laughs> all right all right jack how about your epic moment or feature and then your rating mm. well my epic moment is when Stoic and Valka have kind of met each other again. He's kind of made a bold romantic gesture toward her, but it's still kind of awkward, right? And so Stoic, who's like a big, tough, you know, stereotypically masculine man, kind of starts singing their wedding song in a nice scene where they kind of reunite by doing their little wedding duet and doing a, a fun dance together. And yep. I've listened to that song a ton of times. I thought that was a very cute scene. And uh, Hiccup gets all excited seeing his parents, like, bonding and stuff and how they can all get together. And because he was worried that their clashing, like, ideals would be an issue. But uh, they're getting yeah. along. So I, I, that was a very heartwarming scene for me. I liked that one. Also, their love subplot seemed much better than the love plot in the first film with the Stockholm Syndrome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's and fair. Also, that same love plot between Hiccup and Astrid in the second movie is handled much better. It had their rough beginning in the first film, but now they actually seem like they're into each other and good friends. 
So I don't approve of how they started the relationship, but I think they're doing a much a much better job of showing a healthy couple in the second film. So I think the romance is a lot better in this movie. I'm going to give this movie five out of five, uh, five out of ten, five out of ten swords. The fact that they killed Stoic was a bold stroke. Uh, I'm going to give him a good thumbs up there. I liked the romantic subplot. Because you hate that character so much. I like the character, unfortunately, <laughs> but the fact that they killed off a likable character, I respect. And then uh, I liked the kind of exploration, like you said at the beginning, Chelsea. And there was some cool stuff. Unfortunately, the B plot with the side characters, I really didn't ask for. And Drago is just so forgettable, if I'm being totally honest. I didn't remember much about him or the actual plot of his character. Pretty much when I think fondly of the film, I think of the beginning and the romantic scenes and the bonding with the mom. So, yeah, it did, it did some stuff really well. And I'd say about half the movie could be scrapped and redone. So half of it is going to get my thumbs up. Five out of ten. I agree. I, I think that's fair. Well said. So what about you, Jamie? Epic moment in feature and then rating. I'm going to say that the epic feature slash moment for this movie or moments is going to be uh, Hiccup's squirrel suit. Mm. So yes. it, oh, yeah, that is cool. So Hiccup has developed a winged flying suit that he uses to kind of like dismount from um to dismount from toothless while they're flying and glide through the air on his own wings which is you know something that you can do and is i think really cool uh it never goes well and he never learns to not do it right in the crash zone of rock outcrops and i really thought that this was going to come in somewhere <laughs> in the finale of the movie like he was going to use it for some like big epic save or something and it doesn't really work out that way does he even use it at the end of the movie he does in the final fight yeah okay well it's very forgettable but the actual like mechanics of this out of this uh contraption he's made is very memorable and i think it's very cool yeah he can also like push another button to get a dorsal fin that comes out on his back that helps him uh control the angle of his descent yeah just like toothless can <laughs> they both have a button on their side that creates their dorsal fins oh, God, oh dude so unholy i'm gonna give this movie three swords out of ten um it was kind of a disappointment for me i i remember liking the first movie quite a bit it's really just I'm disappointed in the missed potential. I can see such better directions this movie could have gone, much better outcomes that wrap up its themes and stories in more satisfying ways. And I'm really just disappointed that it didn't take the opportunity to be more than the sum of its parts or to use the sum of its parts to move towards a more satisfying conclusion. Um, I like the characters a lot. I I also agree with Jack. I think that killing off Stoic is a bold choice. I can't help but wonder if it's because they knew that they couldn't afford more Gerard Butler. 
But I mean, these movies seem to do pretty well, so they they probably could have. I think they make a lot of money in return. Let me tell you, the budget between the three films just goes up. Yeah, so I, I don't really understand it from a production standpoint. Um, Stoic is if not if if nothing else, one of the most likable characters because he changes so much from the first to the second movie and becomes this caring, doting father who who believes in his son, whereas in the previous movie, he didn't believe in him. Yeah, it was cute to see their relationship, the little bit that we got to see of it. Yeah, so I'm mostly, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. That's the worst. <laughs> so yeah, three out of ten swords. Um Check it out if you want, but I was honestly pretty bored throughout most of it. It seems to just retread a lot of its... It retreads its own plots repeatedly. It keeps going back to, oh, we're, like, going to the dragon sanctuary. Oh, we're capturing dragons. We're, we, they fight Drago two times, and there never seems to build much tension in any of the moments. And it just kind of just fizzles out. Yeah. It's funny you mention that. In the third movie, the villain seems almost exactly like Drago, but if Drago had, like, a more charming personality. That's too bad, because I really like uh, Jimon Hansu, who plays Drago. Me too. I think he's a great actor. Like, that's another thing that's a disappointment, is that they underutilized a great cast. I think that they, I mean, that we could talk about this next week a little bit more, but... I think that they should have not had a Drago character and saved it for the third movie. Yeah. Yeah. But we can talk about that more next week. Sounds good. Well, next week we'll be rewriting history on How to Train Your Dragon 2. But until then, make sure to check us out on social media at Swords and Satire. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Join our Facebook group to get all of our sweet, sweet memes. And if you had a great time listening to this episode, maybe consider heading over to Patreon and supporting us. That's how we continue to make these hilarious and insightful episodes, we hope. Yeah, you'd be helping to support us if you are able to right now in that way. And we also release exclusive content for our patrons every couple weeks yeah and if you can't do that right now we totally understand but maybe share this with a friend which is another great way to get the word out about swords and satire totally but hey guys until next time hail, hail crom. crom hail him hail him